Section 13 of the Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Newfeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget. A sequel to the murders in the rue morgue there are ideal series of events which run parallel with the real ones they rarely coincide men and circumstances generally modify the ideal train of events so that it seems imperfect and its consequences are equally imperfect thus with the reformation instead of protestantism came lutheranism novalis Moral Ansichten. There are few persons, even among the calmest thinkers, who have not occasionally been startled into a vague yet thrilling half-credence in the supernatural by coincidences of so seemingly marvellous a character that as mere coincidences the intellect has been unable to receive them. Such sentiments are seldom thoroughly stifled unless by reference to the doctrine of chance or, as it is technically termed, the calculus of probabilities. Now this calculus is, in its essence, purely mathematical, and thus we have the anomaly of the most rigidly exact in science applied to the shadow and spirituality of the most intangible in speculation. The extraordinary details which I am now called upon to make public will be found to form, as regards sequence of time, the primary branch of a series of scarcely intelligible coincidences, whose secondary or concluding branch will be recognized by all readers in the late murder of Mary Cecilia Rogers at New York. When, in an article entitled The Murders in the Rue Morgue, I endeavored about a year ago to depict some very remarkable features in the mental character of my friend, the Chevalier C. Auguste Dupin, it did not occur to me that I should ever resume the subject. This depicting of character constituted my design, and this design was thoroughly fulfilled in the wild train of circumstances brought to instance Dupin's idiosyncrasy. I might have induced other examples, but I should have proven no more. Late events, however, in their surprising developments, have startled me into some further details which will carry with them the air of extorted confession. Hearing what I have lately heard, it would be indeed strange should I remain silent in regard to what I both heard and saw so long ago. Upon the winding up of the tragedy involved in the deaths of Madame Laspanaille and her daughter, the Chevalier dismissed the affair at once from his attention, and relapsed into his old habits of moody reverie. Prone at all times to abstraction, I readily fell in with his humour, and continuing to occupy our chambers in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, we gave the future to the winds, and slumbered tranquilly in the present, weaving the dull world around us into dreams. But these dreams were not altogether uninterrupted. It may readily be supposed that the part played by my friend in the drama at the Rue Morgue had not failed of its impression upon the fancies of the Parisian police. With its emissaries, the name of Dupin had grown into a household word. The simple character of those inductions by which he had disentangled the mystery, never having been explained even to the prefect, 
or to any other individual than myself, of course it is not surprising that the affair was regarded as little less than miraculous, or that the Chevalier's analytical abilities acquired for him the credit of intuition. His frankness would have led him to disabuse every inquirer of such prejudice, but his indolent humor forbade all further agitation of a topic whose interest to himself had long ceased. It thus happened that he found himself the cynosure of the political eye, and the cases were not few in which attempt was made to engage his services at the prefecture. One of the most remarkable instances was that of the murder of a young girl named Marie Roger. This event occurred about two years after the atrocity in the Rue Morgue. Marie, whose Christian and family name will at once arrest attention from their resemblance to those of the unfortunate cigar girl, was the only daughter of the widow Estelle Roger. The father had died during the child's infancy, and from the period of this death, until within eighteen months before the assassination which forms the subject of our narrative, the mother and daughter had dwelt together in the Rue Pavé saint andre Madame there keeping a pension, assisted by Marie. Affairs went on thus, until the latter had attained her twenty-second year, when her great beauty attracted the notice of a perfumer, who occupied one of the shops in the basement of the Palais Royal, and whose custom lay chiefly among the desperate adventurers infesting that neighborhood. Monsieur Leblanc was aware of the advantages to be derived from the attendance of the fair Marie in his perfumery, and his liberal proposals were accepted eagerly by the girl, although with somewhat more of hesitation by Madame. The anticipations of the shopkeeper were realized, and his room soon became notorious through the charms of the sprightly grisette. She had been in his employ about a year, when her admirers were thrown into confusion by her sudden disappearance from the shop. Monsieur Leblanc was unable to account for her absence and Madame Roger was distracted with anxiety and terror. The public papers immediately took up the theme, and the police were upon the point of making serious investigations, when one fine morning, after the lapse of a week, Marie, in good health but with a somewhat saddened air, made her reappearance at her usual counter in the perfumery. All inquiry, except that of a private character, was of course immediately hushed. Monsieur Leblanc professed total ignorance as before. Marie, with Madame, replied to all questions that the last week had been spent at the house of a relation in the country. Thus the affair died away, and was generally forgotten, for the girl, ostensibly to relieve herself from the impertinence of curiosity, soon bade a final adieu to the perfumer, and sought the shelter of her mother's residence in the Rue Pavé saint andre it was about five months after this return home that her friends were alarmed by her sudden disappearance for the second time. Three days elapsed, and nothing was heard of her. On the fourth, her corpse was found floating in the Seine, near the shore which is opposite the quartier of the Rue Saint-André, and at a point not very distant from the secluded neighborhood of the Barrière du Roule. The atrocity of this murder for it was at once evident that murder had been committed, the youth and beauty of the victim, and above all her previous notoriety, conspired to produce intense excitement in the minds of the sensitive Parisians. I can call to mind no similar occurrence producing so general and so intense an effect. For several weeks, in the discussion of this one absorbing theme, 
even the momentous political topics of the day were forgotten. The prefect made unusual exertions, and the powers of the whole Parisian police were, of course, tasked to the utmost extent. Upon the first discovery of the corpse, it was not supposed that the murderer would be able to elude for more than a very brief period the inquisition which was immediately set on foot. It was not until the expiration of a week that it was deemed necessary to offer a reward, and even then this reward was limited to a thousand francs. In the meantime, the investigation proceeded with vigor, if not always with judgment, and numerous individuals were examined to no purpose, while, owing to the continual absence of any clue to the mystery, the popular excitement greatly increased. At the end of the tenth day it was thought advisable to double the sum originally proposed, and at length, the second week having elapsed without leading to any discoveries, and the prejudice which always exists in Paris against the police having given vent to itself in several serious émeutes, the prefect took it upon himself to offer the sum of twenty thousand francs, for the conviction of the assassin, or, if more than one should prove to have been implicated, for the conviction of any one of the assassin. In the proclamation setting forth this reward, a full pardon was promised to any accomplice who should come forward in evidence against his fellow and to the whole was appended wherever it appeared the private placard of a committee of citizens offering ten thousand francs in addition to the amount proposed by the prefecture the entire reward thus stood at no less than thirty thousand francs which will be regarded as an extraordinary sum when we consider the humble condition of the girl and the great frequency in large cities of such atrocities as the one described no one doubted now that the mystery of this murder would be immediately brought to light. But, although in one or two instances arrests were made which promised elucidation, yet nothing was elicited which could implicate the parties suspected, and they were discharged forthwith. Strange as it may appear, the third week from the discovery of the body had passed, and passed without any light being thrown upon the subject, before even a rumor of the events which had so agitated the public mind reached the ears of Dupin and myself. Engaged in researches which absorbed our whole attention, it had been nearly a month since either of us had gone abroad, or received a visitor, or more than glanced at the leading political articles in one of the daily papers. The first intelligence of the murder was brought to us by G. In person. He called upon us early in the afternoon of the 13th of July, and remained with us until late in the night. He had been piqued by the failure of all his endeavors to ferret out the assassins. His reputation, so he said with a peculiarly Parisian air, was at stake. Even his honor was concerned. The eyes of the public were upon him, and there was really no sacrifice which he would not be willing to make for the development of the mystery. He concluded a somewhat droll speech with a compliment upon what he was pleased to term the tact of Dupin, and made him a direct, and certainly a liberal, proposition, the precise nature of which I do not feel myself at liberty to disclose, but which has no bearing upon the proper subject of my narrative. The compliment my friend rebutted as best he could but the proposition he accepted at once, although its advantages were altogether provisional. This point being settled, the prefect broke forth at once into explanations of his own views, 
interspersing them with long comments upon the evidence, of which latter we were not yet in possession. He discoursed much, and beyond doubt learnedly, while I hazard an occasional suggestion as the night wore drowsily away. Dupin, sitting steadily in his accustomed armchair, was the embodiment of respectful attention. He wore spectacles during the whole interview, and an occasional signal glance beneath his green glasses sufficed to convince me that he slept, not the less soundly because silently, throughout the seven or eight leaden-footed hours which immediately preceded the departure of the prefect. In the morning, I procured at the prefecture a full report of all the evidence elicited, and at the various newspaper offices, a copy of every paper in which, from first to last, had been published any decisive information in regard to this sad affair. Freed from all that was positively disproved, this mass of information stood thus. Marie Roger left the residence of her mother in the Rue Pavé saint andre about nine o'clock in the morning of Sunday, June the 22nd. In going out, she gave notice to a Monsieur Jacques Saint-Eustache, and to him only, of her intention to spend the day with an aunt who resided in the Rue des Drômes. The Rue des Drômes is a short and narrow but populous thoroughfare, not far from the banks of the river, and at a distance of some two miles, in the most direct course possible, from the pension of Madame Roger. Saint-Eustache was the accepted suitor of Marie, and lodged, as well as took his meals, at the pension. He was to have gone for his betrothed at dusk, and to have escorted her home. In the afternoon, however, it came on to rain heavily, and supposing that she would remain all night at her aunt's, as she had done under similar circumstances before, he did not think it necessary to keep his promise. As night drew on, Madame Roger, who was an infirm old lady, seventy years of age, was heard to express a fear that she would never see Marie again, but this observation attracted little attention at the time. On Monday it was ascertained that the girl had not been to the Rue des Drômes, and when the day elapsed without tidings of her, a tardy search was instituted at several points in the city and its environs. It was not, however, until the fourth day from the period of disappearance that anything satisfactory was ascertained respecting her. On this day, Wednesday, the 25th of June, a Monsieur Beauvais, who, with a friend, had been making inquiries for Marie near the Barrier du Roule, on the shore of the Seine, which is opposite the Rue Pavé saint andré was informed that a corpse had just been towed ashore by some fishermen, who had found it floating in the river. Upon seeing the body, Beauvais, after some hesitation, identified it as that of the perfumery girl. His friend recognized it more promptly. The face was suffused with dark blood, some of which issued from the mouth. No foam was seen, as in the case of the merely drowned. There was no discoloration in the cellular tissue. About the throat were bruises and impressions of fingers. The arms were bent over on the chest and were rigid. The right hand was clenched, the left partially open. On the left wrist were two circular excoriations, apparently the effect of ropes, or of a rope in more than one volution. A part of the right wrist also was much chafed, as well as the back throughout its extent, but more especially at the shoulder blades. In bringing the body to the shore, the fisherman had attached to it a rope, 
but none of the excoriations had been affected by this. The flesh of the neck was much swollen. There were no cuts apparent or bruises which appeared the effect of blows. A piece of lace was found tied so tightly around the neck as to be hidden from sight. It was completely buried in the flesh, and was fasted by a knot which lay just under the left ear. This alone would have sufficed to produce death. The medical testimony spoke confidently of the virtuous character of the deceased. She had been subjected, it said, to brutal violence. The corpse was in such condition when found that there could have been no difficulty in its recognition by friends. The dress was much torn and otherwise disordered, and the outer garment, a slip about a foot wide, had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, but not torn off. It was wound three times around the waist, and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. The dress immediately beneath the frock was of fine muslin, and from this a slip eighteen inches wide had been entirely torn out, torn very evenly and with great care. It was found around her neck, fitting loosely and secured with a hard knot. Over this muslin slip and the slip of lace the strings of a bonnet were attached, the bonnet being appended. The knot by which the strings of the bonnet were fastened was not a lady's, but a slip or sailor's knot. After the recognition of the corpse, it was not, as usual, taken to the morgue, this formality being superfluous, but hastily interred, not far from the spot at which it was brought ashore. Through the exertions of Beauvais, the matter was industriously hushed up, as far as possible, and several days had elapsed before any public emotion resulted. A weekly paper, however, at length took up the theme. The corpse was disinterred, and a re-examination instituted. But nothing was elicited beyond what was already noted. The clothes, however, were now submitted to the mother and friends of the deceased, and fully identified as those borne by the girl upon leaving home. Meantime, the excitement increased hourly. Several individuals were arrested and discharged. Saint-Hustache fell especially under suspicion, and he failed, at first, to give an intelligible account of his whereabouts during the Sunday on which Marie left home. Subsequently, however, he submitted to M. G. affidavits, accounting satisfactorily for every hour of the day in question. As time passed and no discovery ensued, a thousand contradictory rumors were circulated and journalists busied themselves in suggestions. Among these, the one which attracted the most notice was the idea that Marie Roget still lived, that the corpse found in the Seine was that of some other unfortunate. It will be proper that I submit to the reader some passages which embody the suggestion alluded to. These passages are literal translations from L'Etoile, a paper conducted in general with much ability. Mademoiselle Roger left her mother's house on Sunday morning, June the 22nd, with the ostensible purpose of going to see her aunt, or some other connection, in the Rue des Dromes. From that hour nobody is proved to have seen her. There is no trace or tidings of her at all. There has no person whatever come forward so far who saw her at all on that day after she left her mother's door. Now, though we have no evidence that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the 22nd, we have proof that up to that hour she was alive. On Wednesday noon, at twelve, a female body was discovered afloat on the shore of the Barrier du Roule, 
This was, even if we presume that Marie Roget was thrown into the river within three hours after she left her mother's house, only three days from the time she left her home, three days to an hour. But it is folly to suppose that the murder, if murder was committed on her body, can have been consummated soon enough to have enabled her murderers to throw the body into the river before midnight. Those who are guilty of such horrid crimes choose darkness rather than light. Thus we see that if the body found in the river was that of Marie Roger, it could only have been in the water two and a half days, or three at the outside. All experience has shown that drowned bodies, or bodies thrown into the river immediately after death by violence, require from six to ten days for decomposition to take place, to bring them to the top of the water. Even where a cannon is fired over a corpse, and it rises before at least five or six days' immersion, it sinks again if left alone. Now, we ask, what was there in this cave to cause a departure from the ordinary cause of nature? If the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night, some trace would have been found on shore of the murderers. It is a doubtful point, also, whether the body would be so soon afloat, even were it thrown in after having bedded two days. And furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution could have so easily been taken. The editor here proceeds to argue that the body must have been in the water not three days merely, but at least five times three days, because it was so far decomposed that Beauvais had great difficulty in recognizing it. This latter point, however, was fully disproved. I continue the translation. What, then, are the facts on which M. Beauvais says that he has no doubt the body was that of Marie Roger? He ripped up the gown-sleeve, and says he found marks which satisfied him of the identity. The public generally supposed those marks to have consisted of some description of scars. He rubbed the arm and found hair upon it, something as indefinite, we think, as can readily be imagined, as little conclusive as finding an arm in the sleeve. M. Beauvais did not return that night, but sent word to Madame Roger at seven o'clock on Wednesday evening that an investigation was still in progress respecting her daughter. If we allow that Madame Roger, from her age and grief, could not go over, which is allowing a great deal, there certainly must have been some one who would have thought it worth while to go over and attend the investigation, if they thought the body was that of Marie. Nobody went over. There was nothing said or heard about the matter in the Rue Pavé saint andre that reached even the occupants of the same building. Monsieur Saint-Eustache, the lover and intended husband of Marie, who boarded in her mother's house, deposes that he did not hear of the discovery of the body of his intended until the next morning, when Monsieur Beauvais came into his chamber and told him of it. For an item of news like this, it strikes us it was very coolly received. In this way the journal endeavoured to create the impression of an apathy on the part of the relatives of Marie, inconsistent with the supposition that these relatives believed the corpse to be hers. Its insinuations amount to this, that Marie, with the connivance of her friends, had absented herself from the city for reasons involving a charge against her chastity, and that these friends, upon the discovery of a corpse in the Seine, somewhat resembling that of the girl, had availed themselves with the opportunity to impress the public with the belief of her death. 
but l'etoile was again over-hasty it was distinctly proved that no apathy such as was imagined existed that the old lady was exceedingly feeble and so agitated as to be able to attend any duty that saint eustache so far from receiving the news coolly was distracted by grief and bore himself so frantically that m beauvais prevailed upon a friend and relative to take charge of him and prevent his attending the examination at the disinterment moreover although it was stated by l'etoile that the corpse was reinterred at the public expense that an advantageous offer of private sculpture was absolutely declined by the family and that no member of the family attended the ceremonial although i say all this was asserted by l'etoile in furtherance of the impression it designed to convey yet all this was satisfactorily disproved in a subsequent number of the paper an attempt was made to throw suspicion upon beauvais himself the editor says now then a change comes over the matter we are told that on one occasion while a madame b was at madame roger's house m beauvais who was going out told her that a gendarme was expected there and that she madame b must not say anything to the gendarme until he returned but let the matter be for him in the present posture of affairs m beauvais appears to have the whole matter looked up in his head a single step cannot be taken without m beauvais for go which way you will you run against him for some reason he determined that nobody shall have anything to do with the proceedings but himself and he has elbowed the male relatives out of the way according to their representations in a very singular manner he seems to have been very much averse to permitting the relatives to see the body by the following fact some colour was given to the suspicion thus thrown upon beauvais a visitor at his office a few days prior to the girl's disappearance and during the absence of its occupant had observed a rose in the keyhole of the door and the name marie inscribed upon a slate which hung near at hand the general impression so far as we are enabled to glean it from the newspapers seemed to be that marie had been the victim of a gang of desperadoes that by these she had borne across the river maltreated and murdered le commercial however a print of extensive influence was earnest in combating this popular idea i quote a passage or two from its columns we are persuaded that pursuit has hitherto been on a false scent so far as it has been directed to the barrier du roule it is impossible that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without some one having seen her and any one who saw her would have remembered it for she interested all who knew her it was when the streets were full of people when she went out it is impossible that she could have gone to the barrier du roule or to the rue de drome without being recognized by a dozen persons yet no one has come forward who saw her outside of her mother's door and there is no evidence except the testimony concerning her expressed intentions that she did go out at all her gown was torn bound round her and tied and by that the body was carried as a bundle if the murder had been committed at the barrière du roule there would have been no necessity for any such arrangement the fact that the body was found floating near the barrière is no proof as to where it was thrown into the water a piece of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats two feet long and one foot wide was torn out and tied under her chin around the back of her head probably to prevent screams this was done by fellows who had no pocket-handkerchief 
A day or two before the prefect called upon us, however, some important information reached the police, which seemed to overthrow, at least, the chief portion of the Le Commercial's argument. Two small boys, sons of a Madame de Luc, while roaming among the woods near the Barrière du Roule, chanced to penetrate a close thicket, within which there were three or four large stones, forming a kind of seat, with a back and a footstool. On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf. A parasol, gloves, and a pocket-handkerchief were also found. The handkerchief bore the name Marie Roger. Fragments of dress were discovered on the brambles around. The earth was trampled, the bushes were broken, and there was every evidence of a struggle. Between the thicket and the river the fences were found taken down, and the ground bore evidence of some heavy burthen having been dragged along it. A weekly paper, Le Soleil, had the following comments upon this discovery, comments which merely echoed the sentiment of the whole Parisian press. The things had evidently been there at least three or four weeks. They were all mildewed down hard with the action of the rain, and sucked together from mildew. The grass had grown around and over some of them. The silk on the parasol was strong, but the threads of it were run together within. The upper part, where it had been doubled and folded, was all mildewed and rotten, and tore on its being opened. The pieces of her frock torn out by the bushes were about three inches wide and six inches long. One part was the hem of the frock, and it had been mended. The other piece was part of the skirt, not the hem. They looked like strips torn off, and were on the thorn-bush, about a foot from the ground. There can be no doubt, therefore, that the spot of this appalling outrage has been discovered. Consequent upon this discovery, new evidence appeared. Madame de Luc testified that she keeps a roadside inn not far from the bank of the river, opposite the Barrier du Roule. The neighborhood is secluded, particularly so. It is the usual Sunday resort of blackguards from the city who cross the river in boats. About three o'clock, in the afternoon of the Sunday in question, a young girl arrived at the inn accompanied by a young man of dark complexion. The two remained here for some time. On their departure they took the road to some thick woods in the vicinity. Madame de Luc's attention was called to the dress worn by the girl, on account of its resemblance to one borne by a deceased relative. A scarf was particularly noticed. Soon after the departure of the couple, a gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as if in great haste. End of the Mystery of Marie Roger, Part One